Let me ask you now as we uh, come to the scripture that, uh, to, to bow with us and with me as we pray. Father in heaven, now we come to your word. I pray that you would grant to us uh, a sense of belief, real belief. Uh, for this is your word. We pray that you would enable us to receive it. To receive it not as the words of men, but the word of God. So help us, I pray. Take away distractions, whatever they may be, just the day, the moment, uh, what happened before we got here, what will happen the re- remainder of the day, any anxieties we have from the week before, any anxieties we have as we anticipate the week to come. Uh, I pray that we're able to lay those before you now and listen. Help me, help us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, please. I want to read verses 9 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14, please. Hear the word of God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruits in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, We've been in this uh, passage for some time. I think this will be the last consideration of this particular piece of it. This prayer will take up verses, I hope, 12 through 14. Uh, This morning, it's good for us just to ground it in context. Remember, this is written by Paul, an apostle of Jesus, Uh, It's fascinating always to read his stuff in the scripture because we know that he began as a persecutor of the church. He started uh, his life, his adult life. He was a Pharisee, which was a sect of Judaism that, uh, that, that thought, in a sense, they had it all together, that thought they knew the law of God, that thought they could do the law of God and thus be commended to God by their works, by who they were. And Paul was in that camp. He knew himself, thought of himself as a Pharisee, the Pharisee according to the laws of the Pharisee, blameless, that no one could blame him. And so here he was. uh, And when Jesus of Nazareth uh, came along uh, and his followers came along after him, uh, Paul took up the opinion of the other Pharisees that Jesus was an imposter. Worse than that, he was a blasphemer. That is, he had claimed to be the very Son of God. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be one with God. Um, Claimed to be God in the flesh. And that, according to this Pharisee, this Paul, was blasphemy. There was a statement against God. How can Jesus, being a man, claim to be God? This Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, saying that you can't live without me. Claimed to be the light of the world, saying you can't see anything without me. Claimed to be... uh, The good shepherd, good shepherd, shepherd was the name that God used of himself. How could this man claim to be God, being the good shepherd? He claimed to be the door that is the only way to the Father, the only way in to know 
God. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. There's no life apart from me, Jesus said. And even if you die, there's no resurrection apart from knowing me, not resurrection to life anyway. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, the only reliable way, the truth, the only one you could depend on. He was life itself. This Jesus claimed to be the true vine. You can't live unless you're connected to me. This Jesus said, to believe in me is to believe in God. To honor me is to honor God. To trust in me is to trust in God. He spoke as one who had authority, yet when he spoke, he contradicted and went against that which was the current wisdom of the day that Jesus had said was perverted from the real truth. And so Jesus spoke with authority. The Pharisees took up against him. Jesus was eventually killed. Now these followers of Jesus went around, so Paul, now this whose name was then Saul, went around to persecute them, to arrest them, and even to kill them. He had received orders to go to Damascus to arrest others of the followers of Jesus. But in his travels, he himself was arrested by Jesus. Jesus, this risen one, yes, risen, though he had died. He rose from the dead. Paul didn't believe that, but now he did. And when he met the risen Christ, Jesus spoke this to him. And gave him these orders. He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but arise and stand on your feet. For I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And here was the task. Here was the commission. Here was the mission upon Paul's life from Jesus. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is to go in in his work, in his ministry, his preaching, his teaching, and all of that. Somehow through his ministry, eyes are to be opened. So you get the sense that they're closed, that they're blind. People are to be able to see. Eyes are to be opened. So that they may turn from darkness. They're living in darkness, it appears. They can't see, obviously, in darkness. It's it's dark. From darkness to light so that they can see lights. They can see everything then in light of Jesus and through him. And from the power of Satan, they must be under the power of Satan at the moment, to the power of God. And in all of this, they'll receive forgiveness of sins and a place, Jesus said, among those who are sanctified by faith and be sanctified, set apart, sanctified to be made holy. By Jesus. That was the mission that Paul was given. Now, in that mission, of course, he went around. He traveled a great deal. In in his traveling, he planted churches. And there were times after he had planted a church that he would write to them. Thus, we have his letters. And he would write to them the very word of God. He would write to them to encourage them, to teach them. And very often, something had come up, something he had heard about had come up in that fellowship, in that group of believers. And he would write to teach them about it, perhaps to correct them about it or to encourage them in it. So he writes this church in Colossae. As we've said, one of the unique features here is that he didn't plant this church, probably hadn't been there, to this group of believers, that his friend Epaphras, this faithful minister of Christ, had planted it. And now again, Paul, who was once a persecutor of Christians who had been arresting them and throwing them in prison, was now in prison himself by others who were like what he was, 
And they imprisoned him. He's in prison in Rome. Epaphras comes to him, reports to him that there's this church in Colossae and they have great faith in Jesus. They have great love for each other and they have great hope because they get the gospel. They have great hope. They know there's something for them that's secure from God and they're banking everything on that and they're living their whole life in faith in Jesus. So Paul writes to them. He writes to them because uh, he wants to encourage them. He writes to them because he wants to teach them some. And he writes to them because there's some issues going on that he wants to, to help them through and to correct and to enable them, to give them strength, if you will, uh, so that they can continue on and continue on in the faith. He prays for them, as he often does for people that he has ministered to or knows of their faith. He gives thanks to God for their faith. And now he comes to make particular requests and as we've been working our way through this, this prayer, it's important, I think, for us to realize that he prays that which is important. He prays that which is vital for life. Now, I almost said vital for Christian life. And it's certainly vital for that. But I think we have to realize this is vital for life. There is no option to Jesus if you want life. It isn't as if there are two ways. It isn't as if you can go this way with Jesus and get some kind of life and go this way with Jesus and get some other kind of life. The way the Bible puts it is if you go with Jesus, you live in light and life. If you don't, you live in darkness and death. Someone came to you and said, I want to live physically, but I don't want to breathe. You would say, sorry. (laughs) If you want to live physically... You need to keep breathing. And the Bible would say, if a person comes and says, I want life, but I don't want Jesus, the Bible would say, I'm sorry. There is no real life apart from him. Now, what confuses us is that in these days and throughout history, people continue to breathe and reject Jesus. So we think they're living. But according to the Bible, they're not. If you were at a place in your life at one point where you didn't believe, the Bible would refer to you as dead so that your coming to faith that you might receive life is termed coming from death to life, from darkness to light. And so when I say that what Paul is praying here is necessary for life, it is for everyone. Now, This prayer is a prayer concerning Jesus. It's a prayer concerning faith in him and all of that. But please, we need to understand it's it's this important, this believing in Jesus. There's no, I almost said good alternative, there's simply no alternative other than faith in him if it's life and light that we're after, not darkness and death. Are you with me? All right, so please, I don't know why I've been praying for the children, probably my wife. I've been praying a lot for the children of our church lately uh, and our youth. And I, I just have this sense to say to our kids, understand the cost of rejecting Jesus. There's no life. And, and the problem is it looks like life and it feels like life and all of that. But unless Jesus is wrong, it isn't life. So you either bank on our own thinking and our own understanding, or we bank on his. So Paul prays. And what he prays, 
that's important and necessary for life is this first. He prays that we be filled with a knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and insight. Filled meaning controlled by, have this unquenchable desire and orientation to following after what is really the will of God. And what is really the will of God is Christ. Notice in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Colossians in chapter 2. Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 3. It speaks of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so when Paul is praying that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritualism and understanding, what he's praying is that we know Christ. Because in him is the treasure, in him is all wisdom and knowledge. So he's saying, I want you to know Christ. So that, purpose for all of this, so that we can do exactly what we were made to do. And what we were made to do was to live lives worthy of Christ. Worthy of him. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. And so, given who he is, how would we live worthy of him? So, if, to, so Paul prays that we know him, and then knowing him, that he's the Lord of all, the creator of all that is, the judge of the earth, and the Savior that is the gracious one, the merciful one, our Redeemer. To know all that about him, then how would we live knowing that about him? Would we live in such a way that would be fully pleasing to him? And here's what that would look like. It would look like going around and acting like him joyfully, to bearing fruits in every good work, to, to do that which would be pleasing to him, that good that would be pleasing to him. And not only that, that we would increase in our knowledge of God, that we would grow up, that we would mature, that throughout this whole process we would know him better. And then, that because of the way that we live, in the, the world in which we live, we'll need to continue to endure and be patient with joy. That is, it will be a struggle, this following after Jesus, this, this walking with him. And so not only do we do these things that are good, not only do we grow up in him and in our knowledge of him, but also that we endure. And so Paul prays that they be strengthened, trusting that God will in fact strengthen them. So he prays that they be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for endurance and patience with joy, not just begrudging all of that, not just following him, gritting our teeth, but be doing and saying, this is the best life of ever. This really is it. And then finally, we come to this. And what we come to is that we're to be people who are going to live worthy of him, fully pleasing to him, who give thanks. Now, that always sounds like anticlimactic to me. All these other things. We're to be a thankful people. But we are. As we read through the scripture, we find one thing that really is a theme throughout and that is this whole deal of, of thanksgiving. I, I read to you as our call to worship uh, this morning for those who weren't lingering in the halls or parking lot heard this. That's not a rebuke. Yes, yes, yes it is. Um, uh, but um, the, um, I read to you a psalm that, that if you read the old dead guys you, you find that just goes by its number. Uh, you'll be reading along and they'll refer to something called the hundredth. And when they refer to the hundredth, they mean the hundredth psalm. And, and the, the, the catchphrase is there, be joyful, be thankful, because of the hundredth. And you're supposed to know that as you read along. And, and the hundredth is, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. 
And here's why. Know that the Lord is God. And so to live worthy of him is to come into his presence joyfully with singing. How else could you come if you really know him? Know that the Lord is, he's our God. He's the one who's made us. We're his. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. All right, knowing that, then what? Well, come into his gates and you come into his presence. We live in his presence. Come with thanksgiving. His courts with praise. Give thanks and bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. And so the, the hundredth, the psalmist tells us, we're to live like that. Paul knows this. In fact, as he's working his way through uh, this letter, he begins by, in verse 3 of chapter 1, by thanking God for them. In chapter 2, he, he puts this to them. He says, therefore, verse 6, therefore, as you re- have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him. Same ideas we've been talking about in chapter 1. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You know, he, he just adds it to it. He says, if you're going to really walk with him, you need to abound, which I suppose means abound, jump up and down, bound with him. But it really means be filled with thanksgiving all the time. And then later in chapter 3 and verse 15, he puts it like this. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in, in one body, and be thankful. I mean, he just puts that in there. I think if you met Paul in the street and you said, Paul, what's, what's God's will for me? He might give you a list of things, but he would include in that list, either beginning or ending, be thankful. There's a sense in which he'd say, you need to understand who you were, who you are now because of him. And always carry that with you and be thankful. In fact, when he writes to the ter- church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, he puts it like this. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. The question is, how can we give thanks when some circumstances are really, really, really bad? How can we give thanks when some circumstances are really bad? really, really devastating. When people are really hurt, where you could be hurt, others could be hurt that you love. You know, again, read the newspaper. You get devastating circumstances all the time. Look in the mirror. You get devastating circumstances. You know them. And so how can we give thanks? Well, only this way, I think, number one. Because we know that God is almighty. He's all-powerful. Number two, we know that God is all-wise. He knows everything. And number three, that we know that God is all-good. And when you add those together, what you get is something like this. That he can do whatever it is that he wishes because he's all-powerful. He knows, because he's all-wise, all the possibilities available to him that he could do and have done. But since he's good and since then we know those in relationship with him through Christ that he loves us, then we know that he will know that which is best and he will do that which is best because he is good. And so by faith, even in the midst of all kinds of circumstances, we can still give thanks in that sense because we know that he is mighty and we know that he is wise and we know that he's good. And we may not see it at the moment. 
We may not know exactly what good is here, what good will come, but there's a sense in us because we know him that we can carry this thankful buzz with us all the time because we know that and we keep banking on that. We keep going back to that. I can't tell you how many times I'm in situations with people who are suffering. Many of you have gone through this. And it doesn't take too long, really, until someone says, God is good. And there's something about that that isn't trite in those very significant moments. But something about that just sort of washes through. And everybody takes a breath. And we say, okay, I don't get it. This hurts. This is painful. Devastating. Not sure how the next breath will come. But God is good. God is my refuge and my strength, the very help, present help in times of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. There's this sense of God being our help, being our strength, being our friend in the midst of all of that. Now, what's, what happens often that causes us to be not thankful is either when we're given something that we think we deserved to get, When we're given something we think we deserve to get, we're not really thankful about it because we say, well, you owed this to me. So why should I say thank you? This was mine, really. You were just keeping it. Now it's really mine. I I deserve this. This is mine. There's something, of course, that we know we'll get to deeply in a minute that this salvation we have from Christ, this inheritance we have from the Father is really a gift, not that which we deserve. We can't say, you owed it to me. And secondly, there are times when we get gifts that we don't really value, we don't really want, we don't really think are all that great. We've all been there, Christmas, birthdays, weddings, whatever. You get this present and you look at it and you look to someone else and you say, could you write the thank you note for this? I I don't know what this is. Or it's just not all that thrilling to me. I don't really, what do we call that? We re-gift that? Is that what they're saying now? Um, and so we have to ask ourselves the question does what God has given to me something which I really value do I really get it do I really understand what he's given to me and do I really value that do I really know that this is life apart from this there is no life do I really get that so Paul is saying to them I want you to be thankful and here's the basis here's the foundation upon which our thankfulness is to be noticed he says giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He says, all right, he's going to say in a minute that we've been in darkness. Now he said, I want to say there's an inheritance that comes with, with the saints, that is the ones that God has set apart for this blessing of inheritance, the saints' believers. And it's a real inheritance. You'll see it. It will be life. And we think of this inheritance that we gift, get. And when you think of the word inheritance, you realize somehow I have to qualify for an inheritance. I have to be part of the will. Uh, somehow, some, there's got to be a reason for me to be listed there. Uh, somehow I have to be related in some way to, the, to this person who's making out the will to receive this inheritance. And this says that the Father qualifies us for this inheritance. What's the inheritance? What do we get from God? Well, we can see in a variety of ways. We can say life. And you say forgiveness of sins, justification, that the gift that he gives us, justification that, that pardons us from our sins, that, that frees us from the penalty of sin, that inheritance we have from God through Jesus. Justification, pardon your sin, 
so that we're freed from its penalty. This thing called sanctification, where God works in us to make us holy. Uh, It frees us from the power of sin. We know a day is going to come, of course, when we'll be completely free from the power of sin, when we won't sin any longer. We know now we, we struggle with that, but we struggle with it on the basis of this work of Christ that has freed us from its penalty and freed us from its power ultimately so that now we can repent and we can put to death uh, this sin in us and we can live unto God. And we do that. That seems to define our lives. Martin Luther's first of his 95 theses was when God calls a person to follow him, he calls him to a life of repentance. And that's the sense of our lives. And that's this putting off sin. That's this, this saying... I'm no longer under its ultimate control. Therefore, now I put it off, I set it aside, I put it to death, and I walk with Christ. We do that. That defines our lives. This, this adoption that we say is ours because of Christ. We're adopted by him. That is, we're brought into his family. He declares us to be forgiven our sins. He says, I'm working in you to make you holy. And I'm doing all of that because you're mine. You belong now to me. And all of a sudden, the the inheritance lights go off. Oh, I belong to him. I'm, I'm his child. Therefore, I'm his heir. The scripture even puts it like this, that we're heirs of God, co heirs of Jesus Christ. He's our elder brother. And so with him, we're heirs. So all this inheritance really is is ours. And then there's this thing called glorification, this great gift. Not only as in justification when the when the penalty of sin is is taken and sanctification when we're freed from the power of sin, but in glorification we're freed from the presence of sin. No more sin in our in our body. So so we have this resurrected, incorruptible body in glory. And and our souls, our spirits, our hearts are are perfected. The scripture says when we see Jesus will be made like him. And so the sin will be just gone. And, and nothing in the sphere in which we live in his presence in glorification will have any sin in it at all. So there'll be no sickness, no injustice, no poverty, no pain, no grief, none of that. It will all be life in God connected to him, in his presence. Everything will reflect him. Everything will be great. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be as it is because we'll be in his presence. Now the question for us, is any of that worth it? Is any of that valuable? Well, when, Think about this life, think about that. It seems to be great value in that. How else could we really live? The opposite of that is to live unthankful, to live thinking God is wrong, to thinking we can do it better ourselves, and therefore then to live on our own. One of the most, I don't know how to say this, gripping uh, sentences in the Bible for me is in Romans, and chapter 1 comes in the context of a passage about the wrath of God. Verse 18, Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that... There without excuse. So all that just just to say that people know God. They know who he is. They know about him. But then verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. I said, I just think 
The give thanks part seems anticlimactic. It seems like, okay, I get the don't honor him, but what about the give thanks to him? Well, this giving thanks is so important because there's this sense of that's what honors God. That's how we express how we know who he is. To not give thanks is to say, God, I don't want this. God, this isn't valuable. God, you can't really give me anything I need particularly to which I should give you thanks. And so I'm going to go on my own way for that is better. And then we read the devastation of those who go their own way. And so the question for us, is this inheritance valuable? And to realize that the Father is the one who's qualified us for it. No one else can. In fact, we've disqualified ourselves from it. One author puts it like this. He says, You and I, in our natural sinful state, apart from divine grace, are not merely unqualified for the kingdom of God, but we are profoundly disqualified. It isn't as if God says to us, If only you could perform this task or solve that problem or answer some question, then I would grant you entrance into my kingdom. Rather, he says to us, By nature and choice, you're the kind of person who's prohibited from entering my kingdom. Your thoughts, I'm sorry, you think thoughts and commit deeds that warrant exclusion from my presence. It isn't simply that you would be admitted if you could do this or that. But you're excluded because you're the moral and spiritual antithesis of what is required of any who would share my fellowship. By the way, this author ends that section by simply saying, ouch. Right? Ouch, yes. I was reading box scores the other day of a basketball game. And I noticed at the bottom, there was this little, little line that said, disqualifications. And I didn't know exactly what that meant, so I did some exegesis on the box score. And uh, I found that disqualification meant fouled out, because all the people with five fouls were disqualified. That is, they had been playing, but then they were disqualified by playing any longer, and there's no way they could get back into the game. And I was beginning to think, in the context of this, There are some people sitting on the bench, some players sitting on the bench who never got into the game because they were unqualified. Now, they could get into the game if the team got up by 40 because the standards would get lowered and then all of a sudden they met the qualifications. The disqualified guys could never get back into the game no matter what the score was, no matter how badly they might even be needed. And I thought, yes, we're not simply unqualified because God won't lower the standards. We've disqualified ourselves. So then the question is if all these things in this inheritance are valuable, this justification, this sanctification, this glorification, this adoption, if that's really life, if there's no life apart from that, if if apart from that we're on our own, outside of God, if you will, doing the best we can, but but, but really then living not in his light but in darkness, really not with life but death, if, if this inheritance is really valuable, how can I get into that? And the question and the problem is that I'm disqualified from it. The gift is that God qualifies us. He writes us in his will. He puts us as those who are part of this inheritance. Well, how does he do that? Notice what Paul says as he, as he goes on. He says this, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and lights. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. He's done something. He's, he's delivered us. He's rescued us. We were in darkness. Now, darkness, this isn't too complicated, means it's dark. 
And you can't see. I mean, being in the dark is scary if you can't really see and you don't really know what's there. We, we talk to our children when we turn the lights out and put them to bed and all of that. Don't be afraid of the dark. Well, they have some experience with that room and the lights. So we say nothing's really going to change you. It's going to be okay. And so over time, they grow not to be afraid of the dark. And we get this sort of sense in various places where we're safe when it's dark. But other places when it's dark, we might be very afraid because we're unfamiliar with what's really there. If you walk into a dark cave, you don't know what's there. You hear things. You might feel things. But you don't know if it's a safe thing to pick up or something that could kill you if you picked it up. You don't know what's really there. And, and if you get in there so far, you don't know your way out. And there you are stuck in that situation. That's a place to fear. When we read darkness in the Bible, we should shiver. We shouldn't just go ho-hum. Because this is not only darkness in the cave darkness. This is spiritual darkness. And the sad thing about this darkness is darkness that we like. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. So the real problem of getting us out of darkness isn't simply turning on the lights. It's working in the heart in that sense, if you will, to say you don't not to love what's here, this life. And that's where we were. We were in darkness, but we didn't know it. We were in darkness, thought it was light. We were in darkness, and we loved it. We were in darkness and thought this is life. The great gift of the Father to qualify us is to come and to take us out of there. He takes us out of there. He delivers us out of there. He rescues us out of there. And remember, we weren't asking him to do this. The scripture said it was while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nobody went to God and pleaded with him and said, please send your son to die for us. Please, 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 please. He did it while we were yet sinners, while we were still rebellious against him. And he sent his son while we were yet sinners to rescue, to take us. And to put us in the kingdom of the son he loves. The great expression, the son he loves. I was thinking, what if God had two sons? One he loved, one he didn't. Which kingdom would you rather be in? The kingdom of the son he loved or the kingdom of the son he didn't love? Because you can only imagine being the son that he didn't love. And the son he didn't love saying, Father, could you help these people in my kingdom? He'd say no. But we're in the kingdom of the son he loves, this Jesus. And so everything requested by the Son for us, he says yes to. And that's we're in that kingdom. That's why in this prayer of Martin Luther's that I pulled for our confession, it's a bit blunt, Luther was that way. But you see, until we realize this rescue, until we realize what God has done, there'll be no real thankfulness. We'll think we either deserved it or it isn't valuable. But he puts it like this. He says, Dear God, before you I confess that I'm a sinner, the Ten Commandments would drive me and commit me directly to hell, disqualified. But your precious gospel teaches me to know and to believe that out of love you've established a kingdom through Jesus Christ. In it, that is, in this kingdom, you'll be merciful and help forlorn and condemned sinners. I mean, we live under the rule of the merciful Christ. He rules in mercy and grace. And so what he does in his rule, we think of rule, we think that's bad because we don't like to be ruled, but he rules in mercy and grace so that there's help for sinners. So in his kingdom, when sinners come and say, please forgive me, he says yes. When sinners come and say, I'm weak, please help me, he says yes. That's the kingdom of Christ. When people enter and say, I don't need your help, he says, be out of my kingdom. 
There's no place for you in my kingdom if you don't need me. There's no place for you in my kingdom if you're self-sufficient. There's no place for you in my kingdom if you think you have it all together. There's no place for you in my kingdom if you think your way is right to live. That's why Jesus said, come to me. Oh, you're weary and burdened. Then you become a citizen of my kingdom. You come to me like that. And I'll give you rest in my kingdom. So Luther knew that so he could pray finally and confess his sins and know forgiveness because it is really there. He's delivered us from the domain uh, of, um, of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been redeemed. So we've been rescued and redeemed. Rescued, taken out. But the way we were rescued is that some price was paid. And Paul says, and you need to know not only your rescue, how desperate you were, but secondly, the price paid for you. Uh, we read in our, our um, profession of faith from Ephesians chapter 1 uh, that included verse 7 that's this. In him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have it through his blood. By his very death, we have forgiveness of sins. That was the price paid, you say. That was the price paid. Paul says, think about that. Are you now not thankful that so much was given that you might be forgiven your sins? Be thankful. Uh, a number of years ago, I was found myself, and Karen too, I think, having to teach one of the most difficult lessons I think we've ever had to teach. And it was the lesson of thankfulness. Uh, we had a kid who came to live with us who... Uh, was in a certain measure of trouble. He had beaten up his mother with a baseball bat. He had run away from home. He had stolen valuables from the family. He had uh, become addicted to drugs and was dealing drugs. And um, somehow he ended up at our house. And um, so he stayed with us for months. But after the first, I don't know, six weeks or so, both Karen and I found ourselves to be Incredibly angry with him. We, uh, he'd, he'd done great. Never became a Christian as far as we know. We haven't heard from him in years. But, um, um, you know, he'd cleaned up a bit and all of that. He was, but we just found both of us irritated <laughs> by this kid. Now, we know kids can do that. But um, we both realized that he was living in our house as if he deserved to be there. And then we were stuck because we felt really bad about ourselves. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be like this. We shouldn't think like this. Oh, my. And then we said, no, he needs to learn this. So how do you teach thankfulness? So we sat him down and told him where he would be if he wasn't in our house. And that was hard to do. It was humbling to do, painful for us to do. And then we told him what he had because he lived in our house. Now, granted, it wasn't as much as he would have had if he'd been in somebody else's house, I suppose. But it wasn't better than what he would have gotten had he gone to prison. And I think that's what Paul's doing here for us. He's saying, I want you to be thankful. I want you to know the deal. I want you to know that you were disqualified, but the Father qualified you. Think about that. You were in darkness. He rescued you from that. You didn't even want to get out. You didn't know you were there. And he rescued you from that and brought you into this great kingdom of the son he loves. And he paid this price, 
that you can't even fathom that you might have forgiveness of sins. Now he says, I want you to live with this thankfulness. Jesus gave us a picture, gave us taste and smell so that we would have before us that very truth as well. It was Jesus, we know, who redeemed us. When Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says, I'm sorry, Galatia, he says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. An old dead guy named George Smeaton wrote a book called The Doctrine of the Atonement According to the Apostles. And in his comments on Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 of Jesus redeeming us from the curse of the law, asked, what's the curse of the law? And he put it like this. He said, the curse of the law is the privation of God. Now, that's a funny word, privation. We don't use that very often. It feels like it's bad. We use the word deprivation, meaning that we're deprived something. The privation of God, in Smeaton's mind, was that God deprived Jesus I'm sorry, yeah, God deprived Jesus on the cross of his very presence. That's why Jesus would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curse of the law. To be outside of the blessing, the presence, the gracious presence of God. Well, when he died to the curse of the law, the sense is then that we live, therefore, believers, in the very presence of God. We're not deprived of the presence of God. We're adopted. We're not deprived of the presence of God. We're justified. We're not deprived of the presence of God. He's working in us to sanctify us. We're not deprived of the presence of God. The time will come when we will be glorified. And we need to know that. That apart from God's presence is agony, darkness, death. But he's qualified us that we might Inherit this great blessing. The night that Jesus was betrayed, the scripture tells us he took bread, he broke it. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, the scripture tells us that Jesus took the cup that was there. And again, after giving thanks, he took it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring he's qualified us to inherit the great blessing of the presence of God. To know him to be in him for all eternity. And all that that means, forgiveness of sins, holiness in life, perfection in all that's around us, ultimately, as we live in him. And we're declaring, I trust that we're thankful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, we get it. We really understand it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cause us to know the darkness we were in, to understand that's really true, that we really have been rescued, that we can take that deep breath and and just simply utter, wow, God, what have you done? 
that we would know the price paid, that we would understand that, and that we would live with a sense of gratitude, a sense of gratefulness, of thanksgiving, always, no matter what, even when times are bad, to be able to come back to this place and know that we belong to you, and that you're good, that you're wise, that you're almighty, and that you've proven all of that in Jesus as one act as he gives himself for us. To know that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Enable us to live there. Lord Jesus, I pray, meet us here. Even as this bread and juice is set apart, Jesus, I pray, spiritually be present with us as we come to this table. Meet us here, please, in a way that only you can define, only you can know how it's to be. But I pray that you'll meet us here, that our faith will increase, that we will live, a, we will live as a grateful people. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.